electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. starts right now live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, check out shares of IBM sinking in the after hour session despite snapping 22 quarters of consecutive revenue declines. Jim Cramer will be here in just moments to give us his take on the quarter and the stock. Plus, holy crypto comeback, Batman. The major coins rebounding quickly from their lows after two days of heavy selling. And a top Bitcoin investor says it's not over yet. He won't believe how high he thinks Bitcoin is still headed. Spencer Bogart of Blockchain Capital will be here to explain. And later is government intervention, the very thing that sparked the Bitcoin bloodbath. The kryptonite for crypto. Former FDIC chair Sheila Baer will be here with a surprising call. But first, we start off with a rise in rates spooking stocks. Check out the Dow sinking triple digits after yesterday's huge rally in the culprit. But look no further than the bond market. The 10-year yield entering critical territory today as it crosses above a key level of 2.6%. Double Line Capital founder Jeffrey Gunlock said that 263 is the line in the sand where rates, the rise in rates could accelerate quickly and take the market down along with it. So as we inch closer to the danger zone, are the rates the only thing that could ruin this rally? Guy. Love that song. No, you don't. Well, you've been around me a long time. It's 11 years. Well, right? We've known each other a long time. Yeah. So you've come like to realize that I'm sure. not that bright. At least. So for me to put The Economist hat on, you know that's, I mean, that's foolish for me even to play the game. But I'll say this. I can make an argument that rising rates could be good for the market. Why? Because it means the economy is growing. Globally, economies are growing. That should be bullish for the equity market. However, mm. be careful what you wish for in terms of the Fed. And little inflation is good. And Carol will make this point. But... It's hard to keep that genie in the bottle. So little inflation is good. A lot of inflation, not so good. And that's not something you can jam back in. I do think the Fed's behind the curve. I do think we're going to get inflation in all the wrong places that could derail this thing in the back half of 18. But for right now, I'm not all that concerned about rates going higher. Yeah, I would just say on the flip side of that, you know, the deflation in the dollar is something that's obviously good for stocks or a lot of U.S. multinationals. And so today was a good example where the S&P massively outperformed relatively to the uh, IWM, the Russell 2000, which is down 65 basis points today. And so to me, when you think about it, rising rates is worse for them. They're more levered. This is the small caps. And you think of these large caps who have been benefiting from low rates. They've raised a lot of debt, but they are able to finance a lot of that debt. So when they're getting, like an IBM, we're going to talk about a little more, two-thirds of their sales from overseas, this is probably not a bad thing for them right now. Yeah. Karen? Well, I, I agree with a lot of what Guy is saying, I think partially because he's agreeing with me. But still, <laughs> I think that rising rates that are slowly and gently rising is okay and like better than okay. okay. So far. This is okay so far. Is okay 263 so far. is okay so far. 263 is okay so far. What we really don't want is an inflationary spike that causes the Fed to get off what we think is a plan, a smooth plan, 
you know, uh, several several raises and the balance sheet shrinking and have to do something much more dramatic or, or even if we get to the same place but get there like that, right. that's far more dangerous for the market. That's my single biggest fly in the ointment for this mm -hmm. market. Just yesterday we were talking about the impact of the tax cuts, Pete. You're on yeah. board. You're on the Trump yeah. train when it comes still to out. the impact and yeah. you still are. Not kicked off on that. I think these so guys... So do you think that inflation is... Well, uh, the velocity of it, the, the velocity of what we're talking about uh -huh. here is what everybody sees. That's the theme. And I totally agree. And if it's a slow, steady, methodical, it's very much like volatility. We've been sitting there between this 10, 12, call it 9, 12 area for quite some time. Now we're above 12. But it's a nice sort of a steady kind of a plodding along kind of a thing. If we see spikes, that's where things get a little bit more dicey. And it's the same thing, I think. If we see suddenly the 10-year make a nice big spike, that will be negative, at least temporarily in the short term, but that might create great opportunities because I still believe in what's going on in terms of the tax reforms. I still believe in the possibility of infrastructure. I still believe as long as the political side of what's going on in the stock market is at ease, we're in a very comfortable spot. The likelihood of a Fed mistake guy you very thought high. was pretty high before. Is it even greater now with the possible impact from tax yeah, reform and, and, and a possible infrastructure And it's plan. not because they don't know what they're doing. I mean, they're, the, they're potentially some of the smartest people on the planet, right? It's just that, you know, this is eight or nine years down this road. To thread the needle is extraordinarily difficult to do. And not only are they threading the needle here in the United States, now they have to deal with economies overseas because one of the things that's happened here our Federal Reserve has empowered other central banks to act in kind. So to think that this is going to be pulled off on a global level is absolutely a concern. Well, I, I just think that, you know, given the fact that we have a new Fed chair coming in the next couple of months, I think the likelihood of them actually screwing up is not particularly great. When you think about it, they've obviously been very transparent. People are expecting three hikes this year. You know, maybe we get this gradual move in the 10-year in the back to 3%, you know, in, in a gradual fashion like you're talking about. That's where we were in 2013 on that taper tantrum. So at this point, I think that you should have great confidence that the Fed will not screw this up. They're not going to have political pressure to raise rates particularly fast. And the only issue would be is if we saw the stock market look like Boeing, like I'm just saying in general, and it really started to take off like we saw in 1999, then you'd start to get worried that they are way behind the eight ball. And then there, I don't know what the heck they do. I don't know how quickly, because you could cause some sort of shock in a very low Well, they have been very transparent, but the interesting thing to me is we had Steve Leisman on the halftime today, and he was talking about three, maybe four hikes. Now, that's interesting to me because that makes me feel like then the Fed is being a little bit less transparent than they've been in the past. They're talking about three. We suddenly add and kick in a fourth. Is that something that all of a sudden starts to tip? And are they doing that out of panic? But that would be data dependency, which is a term that we used to hear for years and years. Yes. And now, I mean, right. so, so my point is it's also asset prices, too, right? So if you yeah. had a risk asset, like, just melt up. Then you really have to do something because, it, you know, I mean, things I'm more worried about it at commodity melt-up, right? It's some sort of inflation that isn't asset prices, but labor. And, you know, we talk about, the, Pete mentioned velocity money. We're seeing all these bonuses, right? And some of that money, Apple's not going to get spent. That's deferred tax money. But so many of these bonuses coming out. I'm afraid of that combination labor. I mean, look at where oil is now. We see another oil spike that that's the cause of it, not rising asset prices. So what do we do with our portfolios if we believe there's a risk uh, from higher interest rates and or inflation guy? Well, you say with material stocks, I think. I mean, they've been a big beneficiary over the last six to nine months. Tim Seymour's been on this for quite some time. But you look at a name like Freeport McMurray, for example, that's going from 12 and a half up to, I think, current levels, 19 and a half. I think those names will still work. U.S. Steel, the steel sector still has tailwinds behind it. So if you're concerned about the things that Karen just said, I think you stay with the materials space. 
Well, I think it's worth noting that Alcoa was down what eight and a half percent today. Much so different had, company though. No, but I, no yeah. I'm just saying as far as materials, you know, and, and this is really the setup is in January that I'm talking about. Is we had these massive runs. People were getting in front of these cyclical turns that were going to come possibly with tax reform, that sort of stuff, maybe infrastructure. And when you have one bad quarter, look what happens. We'll talk about IBM again. You know, look what happens. They ran into their numbers. The same thing with Goldman Sachs earlier yes. this week. So to me, it's kind of a treacherous setup in earnings. We're going to know a lot more by mid next week. What did you do today? You know, the only thing I was very quiet today for me, but the one thing I did do was I added to some Apple. I saw some huge call buying in Apple. I thought that was really interesting. I'm a big believer, especially after all the news last night, the 20,000 jobs, the $350 billion, everything that they talked about in that press release yesterday and Tim Cook talking about it. It makes me think, is Apple going to be the trillion-dollar company that everybody's always said? They're going to be the first to get there. Maybe they are. If that's the case, do they go through 200? They were buying the 210 calls out there in Apple Day. I bought along with them out in July. So. Karen, what'd you do? Uh, I didn't do a lot today. The one thing is I do own puts. I always own puts. That's what I do. To, I want to stay with what I have. It seems to be working. But I own them not for the volatility to reach 12. It's something much higher. So I wouldn't be selling those puts on this move. 17, the 19, something like that type of a spike in yes, the volatility. significantly right. higher. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Still ahead. Check out shares of IBM here. This was supposed to be Big Blue's big turnaround, but the stock is tanking. Jim Cramer will be here in just a few moments to give us his take on the quarter. Plus, just how wrong are Wall Street analysts? It might even be worse than you think. Former New York Governor Elliot Spitzer, the man who took on the biggest Wall Street firms, will explain how he is keeping the experts honest. Plus, Bitcoin making an epic comeback from its big sell-off this week, and one Bitcoin investor will be here to explain why he says an even bigger rally is coming. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's take a look at IBM sinking after hours despite beating on the top and the bottom lines. The company posting its first revenue beat in 23 quarters. Shares are still up more than 5% this year. Coming into uh, its report, it had all the makings of a turnaround story. But after 22 quarters of revenue declines, a tough 2017 falling more than 20% from its all-time high. And if the price action after hours, should you just stay away from Big Blue or... Is there still a turnaround in sight? What do you think, Pete? I do think there's a turnaround, and I actually the stock's up 10% just this year so far. Uh-huh. So this pullback, maybe it makes a little bit of sense. I mean, Dan was talking about some of the other pullbacks that we've seen. Goldman Sachs hit its new highs just yesterday, and then it's pulled back ever since. So I think it was just a little bit in front of itself. I still like the company. I like the fact that they have made and shown finally a turn. We've been waiting forever, five and a half years. We finally get a turn of something, and the revenue's finally beat. Aren't there a lot of questions, though? I mean, I think this conference call will be really key in terms, especially when it comes to, for instance, knowing what the normalized tax rate will be for IBM, because a lot of analysts think that it's actually going to be higher. It is going to be higher. I mean, I think that was pretty well known last week. I would just say this. This is strategic imperatives, about 45% of their sales. This is the faster-growing cloud, AI, these sorts of services. So to me, if you get um, 17% growth, if they can kind of guide to that for the first half of this year, I think that's enough for people to take a shot here. So I'm kind of talking my book. I'm a little long here. Um, but to me, I'd be very surprised if this stock is 161 and a half tomorrow sometime midday. I mean, I'll just make one other point. When you see these fast-growing businesses and you think about what Hewlett did a few years ago, splitting that company up, I would suspect that that's something on tap for this company, not so distant future. Because when you think about it, uh, Ms. Rometty, who's the CEO of this company, um, you know, she's probably on the hot seat here. You know, So to me, um, that could be something that happens in 2018. For more on IBM, Jim Cramer just spoke with the senior vice president and former CFO Martin Schroeder earlier. Here's what he told Jim about the quarter. 
first half to second half, which we described back in July, kind of played out as we said, and that puts us on a good base. Now, what you just heard was we guided toward uh, growing revenue and stable margins. When we think about the transformation of IBM, I'd say that, that yes, now the, the portfolio is transformed and we've got some momentum going into 2018. Let's bring in the one and only Jim Cramer of Mad Money fame. Hi, Jim. Melissa, um, how are you? Good. I'm trying to figure out why the stock is down so much in the after hours. Is it simply because it ran up into the quarter? I Look, it was up six points in the quarter, a lot of positive hype. Uh, analysts just went from a sell to a buy at Barclays. People usually feel that means it must be some gigantic upside surprise. That was not what's going to occur. I agree with Pete. I agree with Dan. I think that this stock is a unique buying opportunity. The 2018 guidance will be good. The 2019 situation is looking good. Let's take out that tax situation, concentrate on the fact that the orders for the mainframe are not done. They're just beginning. I like the stock with a 3.7%, 3.65% yield. I think this is one of the more attractive companies. The cash flow has gone up gigantically, and that will be used to buy back stock, uh, boost the dividend again. It's almost doubled in the last five years. I think that this is one of the lower risk situations at this particular price right now. Jim, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. With a PE multiple of 12, that obviously sounds low. Where do you think it should be? You know what? I think it should. First of all, I think it got slammed. I agree with you, Karen. It got slammed down because Warren Buffett got uh, it did something I thought was highly unusual for Warren Buffett, which he told Becky, look, basically, uh, this one, I washed my hands of it, and he crushed the stock. I think that it's perfectly realistic that this thing could sell it, say, uh, 13 and a half, 14 times earnings. I mean, you can see the stock be used at where Barclays is using, maybe a $190 price target. I think Americans have been waiting for this company to reinvent itself. It's finally reinventing. I think Ginny did a good job. I think Martin's terrific. He might inherit the top slot it, it, because that's where Ginny was before she got the CEO job. I think Martin's a straight shooter. The conference call, a lot of good things being said. I think that this is one of those situations where maybe at 161, there's like three down and maybe 10 up. Those are hard to find. Before we let you go, Jim, we want to play a game with you of Would You Rather, favorite game here on the Fast Money Desk. And we give you the choice of two uh, Dow performers, the best ones this year, IBM or Boeing? Uh, oh, boy. Uh, I've been saying that Boeing's going to get to $400, but I thought it, I thought it was going to take uh, 18 months. It looks like I think it's going to be there ahead of that. Boeing has got the best. Uh, it, it, Boeing trades in big spurts, two-year spurts. So I think Boeing is still remarkable. And you got an opportunity here. I'm sure there's a lot of guys with price targets at the 320, 330 level going to use the break today to be able to push it tomorrow. Did you give me a choice? No, he didn't. No, I'm saying Boeing. I didn't think so. I'm saying Boeing. I'm saying Boeing. Wow. I like Boeing. It's one of my absolute favorite stocks in the world. All right. Great to see you, Jim. Great Thanks to for see your you time. Guys. Jim Cramer, Mad Money. Of course, the full interview with Martin Schroeder tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. You won't want to miss that. Um, Guy Dami, would you uh, concur with Mr. Kramer when it comes to the Would You Rather game? Well, I've been a Boeing bull for a long time. Yeah. I think that Boeing will continue to rally in the earnings. But in, I think January 31st is when they report. they got to knock it out of the park, in my opinion, for it to continue this trajectory that we've seen. So to answer your question, right here, right now, IBM, quickly, the, one of the reasons sure. I think IBM got hit, margins, they, the margins should have improved this quarter given sort of their business mix. Margins were down. Gross margin, 49.5% this quarter, 51% same quarter last year. That's disappointing. But, answer your question, IBM. If they can swing, come out in the conference call and talk a lot about blockchain and that JV with Maersk, 
I mean, isn't that just a little magic? That's a little, that they, little <laughs> right, magic exactly. dust you're floating out there, right. I think, on top of things. I, I'd be a buyer of IBM as well. I agree with you. And I love the, the idea of the cash flow, something that Boeing has as well. But I think IBM, because of where you look at it valuation-wise, it does have more upside, I think, from here on out. I'd rather be an IBM than Boeing. Still ahead, American Express thinking after hours the company suspending its buybacks uh, after taking a tax hit. We'll bring you the latest from the call. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. First in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Shout to the heart! If only Wall Street analysts were so accurate. But they aren't. And you won't believe just how off the mark they've been. We'll explain. Plus, hey, I'm back. That's what Bitcoin bulls are hoping for, the suddenly surging cryptocurrency. And a top Bitcoin investor says there's something about the bounce that's signaling more gains to come. He'll be here to explain why when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The crypto space bouncing back today after Bitcoin suffered its worst two-day stretch in three years. Seema Modi's in the newsroom with more on the crypto craze. Seema. Melissa, it's definitely been a volatile week. After staging its biggest two-day sell-off in three years and losing half of its value, Bitcoin is rebounding and other cryptocurrencies are following suit. Bitcoin is now 25% off its lows. Ethereum is 40% off its lows. Ripple, Litecoin up 90 and 48% respectively from lows this week. So a notable comeback for sure. Now, we have seen big drawdowns in Bitcoin before. There have been six 20% or more drops since January of 2017, but they have proven to be buying opportunities. The average return after two weeks is 24% and 81% a month later. That according to Genesis Trading. Some of the biggest Bitcoin bulls are calling for a retest of old highs and beyond. Thomas Lee of Fundstrat reiterating his call that Bitcoin will hit 25,000 by the end of the year, calling the sell-off the biggest buying opportunity in 2018. Dan Chiatoli of Bespoke still sees Bitcoin moving higher from here, but he's reducing his 2018 price target due to the recent correction from $30,000 to $40,000 to the $20,000 to $30,000 range, contingent on important upgrades like the Lightning Network, which he says could make Bitcoin transactions more efficient. But important to note that the regulation concerns that initially sent cryptocurrencies lower have not gone away and experts say will likely persist. Melissa, back to you. All right. Thanks so much, Seema Modi. For more on the crypto comeback and all things Bitcoin, let's bring in Spencer Brogart of Blockchain Capital. Spencer, great to see you again. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you actually think that, that what we saw in terms of the sell-off over two days, that's a good thing because it shakes out weak hands. Yeah, listen, I, I wish I could say that we're out of the woodworks right now, but I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, when Bitcoin in 2014, when it fell from 1,000 down to 300s, we saw a couple bumps along the way. Now, that said, I'd like to hold Bitcoin in 2018. But listen, if we think about the rest of the market, there's still a lot of coins that I think are overpriced. We're seeing many coins that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and haven't delivered any product. And you're talking about the coins that trade for or once traded for less than a dollar. I mean, you, you actually think that there are a lot of uneducated investors who are grabbing the cheaper, cheapest coins out there. Absolutely. That's one of the number one pieces of evidence for why this, this market is not terribly sophisticated at the moment. When you see a strong correlation between a, a unit bias like this, where people are just looking for the coins that are worth less than a dollar, it doesn't make sense. And it's not a sign of a really discerning market. That's a really interesting point. You know, I was looking at that chart that Seema just had up there. All of those peak to trough declines from 13, 14, 15, that sort of thing. In your mind, 
are they comparable to what we just saw? Because back then, weren't they just real true believers there? And so the dips were viable. Now it's a much bigger market cap. And so at this point, there's a lot of speculators versus what was going on a few years ago. Does that kind of factor into this uh, thought process a little bit? You know what? I'd actually disagree with that. I think that now in 2018, we have a lot of people that recognize that Bitcoin's not going away. But we have to go back, and if we rewind to 2014, when Bitcoin came off its highs of $1,000 and started declining back to 300, we had the bust of the Silk Road and Mt. Gox. People felt like this was the end of Bitcoin. That was the sentiment, even for a lot of hardcore believers. I'd say today, when I, when I talk to a lot of people out in the marketplace, everyone recognized that Bitcoin's not going away. So there's a legion of people out there, an increasingly growing segment of people, that see this as a great buying opportunity. And I definitely think that's the case with Bitcoin. It's not going away, you say, but you do say that there's competition. And these are some interesting analogies that I read in the notes from the producer, Spencer, that you think Bitcoin audio. and Ethereum are basically like brother and sister. They can sort of coexist. But Bitcoin does have competition when it comes to Zcash Definitely. and Monero. Is that because that's the transaction side of things? You know what? I think that Z the Zcashes and the Moneros of the world have, have a real place in this. I mean, we're getting a little bit deep in the tech here, but uh, privacy is the, is the other side of the coin of fungibility. So when I use my $20 bill, at, at the local uh, grocery store, they don't differentiate one $20 bill from another $20 bill, right? And that's an important feature of, of Monero and Zcash, some of these privacy coins, is that um, they're all treated equally. Potentially with Bitcoin, each of them has its own unique history and has its own unique set of owners that, that could be an asset or it could be a, a liability longer term. But it sounds like those privacy coins are begging for regulators to sniff around and maybe impose some, some rules around them. Sure. So I think that we need to think about privacy coins a little bit differently. It's not necessarily about let's conceal everything, but it's about selective disclosure. It's a, let's not expose everything to everyone in the world. Who wants to see, who wants to open up their bank account for everybody in the world to see? But sure, if, if your significant other or if a regulator or somebody wants to see it, you might be okay with selectively disclosing that information. So I think that's really the holy, holy grail of privacy coins. All right, Spencer, uh, great seeing you again. Spencer Bogart. Blockchain. All right, so let's trade this here. Um, he made some very interesting calls, Dan, especially about some of the smaller coins out there. I think that's a great point that he made. I mean, listen, you know, the, the fact is, is like now, you know, people are believers in a way that they're committing real capital. Before, it was a much smaller sort yeah. of thing. So to me, you know, listen, I, I've been there kind of poking around, buying a little bit, um, uh, Bitcoin Cash. And uh, Ethereum, to me, they seem like the ones that um, kind of have some room to go here. Bitcoin, um, you know, I, this one, it seems like there's kind of some technical issues here. Um, and people really want to build on the ones where they think it's cheaper and faster, that sort of thing. So, so Well, Bitcoin Cash, to what yeah. Dan's point right. is, I think is actually more interesting. This discrepancy seems to still be here for a while. Although I, I think it in price in price between Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin, right, um, or the other way, I yeah. guess. <laughs> um, but so I think that that should close. And then some of these ICOs, it's just the wild west of ridiculousness, yeah, for sure. Still ahead, we are all over the Bitcoin boom here on Fast Money. And later in the show, former FDIC chair Sheila Baer will be here to tell us why the crypto crackdowns have gone way too far. Plus, what do Nvidia, Amazon, Boeing, and GE all have in common? There are just a handful of stocks that analysts have been missing the mark on over the last year. So how reliable are these Wall Street research reports? Elliot Spitzer, former New York governor, early investor in tip ranks and analyst tracking firm, will be here to weigh in. Much more Fast Money on this very busy night straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks continue their record run. Wall Street analysts have been missing the mark on some of the biggest names in the market. Bob Pisani is at the NYSE to break it all down. Hi, Bob. 
Hello, Melissa. A target price is supposed to be a price that a stock should seek to attain, but analysts are sometimes a bit slow getting on the bandwagon, particularly on fast-moving stocks. So take NVIDIA, for example. Throughout most of 2017, the price of NVIDIA was trading above the average price target of the analyst community. What's that about? Finally, in November, NVIDIA had its price target raised four times by different firms, anywhere from 190 at Nomura to 260 at, at Daiwa. That's a huge price difference. And it's not just tech stocks. So look at Boeing. It traded in line with the target price for most of 2017. That's not right. Analysts finally got on the ball in July when they dramatically upped the price targets from 197 to 250 in a couple weeks. But the stock has had such a relentless climb even since then that it's traded up to the target price, which is now about $300, again in mid-December. And then they upped the targets again. And right now the price is 340 So the target price is 345 It's essentially the same. Expect big heights, hikes in the target price soon. Analysts aren't invariably behind on everything. So in the case of Amazon, the average analyst target price in 2017 was 10 to 15 percent higher than the stock price. That's roughly the way it ought to be. But that's now changed since Amazon has rocketed nearly 11 percent this year. The average price target of $1,340 is very close to Amazon's price, just below $1,300. But only after Piper Jaffray raised their price target to $1,400 and that was last week. Then there's the opposite problem. If analysts were too slow to hike targets for stocks with big upside momentum, they're usually too slow to drop targets with big downside momentum. So GE's the big example here. Targets started declining in the second quarter, but by June, the price was more than 12% below the target price. Targets were cut big time in June, cut again in October. But today, the price targets are still 20% above the price. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani. Um, so let's trade this, and, and I want to take GE because it did break a key level today. It was below $17 for the first time in many years. I think it was six years or so. And it did seem like a lot of analysts, there was one analyst counting, counting company in November which came out with the sum of the parts um, analysis, 11 to $15, $15 a share. And they were an outlier. And then here we have all these analysts sort of re-looking at it redoing the sum of the parts. And granted, there was a change in terms of the news and the insurance business, but now all of a sudden everybody's like, hey, you know what, it's not worth it for trading here. So we're obviously going to have this discussion. The industry absolutely got lazy. But like many things, they're great analysts and they're not so great sure. analysts. The Cowan guys and gals did a great job in G. They're going to wind up being right. And whether or not right or not, quite frankly, they have been right because look at what's done happened to the stock. I mean, we try to do this every night in some capacity, be analysts, and we do it to varying de degrees of uh, skill. But I'll say one thing. It's not value-added, in my opinion, when Goldman Sachs takes Walmart from a neutral or wherever they are, a conviction buy yeah. list, <laughs> but raise their price target from 115 to 117. Like, to me, that's not really what they should Why? be doing. I mean, I actually disagree. I mean, really, the only huh? reason they're raising that price target $2 is that to. they made an adjustment to their estimate. So hopefully they did some work. And they raised their estimates right, a little but bit. But they're, they're so far wrong. But okay, but who's who's trading off a price target anyway? Well, but I mean, that factors really into things. I think the key to the whole analyst thing is you have to find the right analyst in every single stock out there. Yeah. And, and and Katie Huberty for Apple and IBM. And I'd, I'd, I'd Mark Mahaney. I'd put him in Netflix. I'd put him in Amazon. I'd put Oliver Chen in retail. I mean, everybody's got their spot. And you listen to the guys who've been and gals who've been the most right. And that's how you It's also it. interesting, by the way, to look at the analysts who are very wrong, wrong. who may be extremely bullish or extremely bearish, so you get the other side of, of yep. the story. Anyway, so with analysts seemingly missing the mark on the biggest stocks, just how much is Wall Street research 
really worth? If that's what you're wondering, you may want to check out TipRanks, the company that uses data-driven methods to look at individual analysts and how their stock recommendations are performing. We've got TipRanks CEO Uri Greenbaum here. He's joined uh, by one of TipRanks' earliest investors and a very familiar face. You might know him, the former governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer. Uh, gentlemen, good to have you with us. Thank you for having us. Should I call you Governor or Elliot? Call him a witch. I'll call you Elliot. Has anything gone any better since your days cracking down on Wall well, Street? Well, let me answer it this way. Better means many different things. What we attacked when I was Attorney General was intentionally misleading investors, analysts who had conflicts of interest and were intentionally saying buy when they knew the stock was bad. I think much of that has disappeared because the conflicts that were structural have been addressed. The market has taken care of that. What Yuri created through tip ranks was a company designed to address a different issue, which is not intentionally misleading investors, but some analysts are good and some are bad. And as we just had this conversation, as each of you said, there are folks who are good you want to follow who are right. thoughtful, smart, analytically correct, and others who are simply lagging behind the market and seeing last week's data, extrapolating it forward. And what TipRanks does is permit you to look and examine how every analyst has performed over any metric, time frame, up markets, down markets, by sector. That's why this company is designed to make the markets transparent mm -hmm. for analysts. Have some of the changes that Elliott put into place way back when created an environment now where there is no edge in Wall Street research? And that's why we're seeing much more of a herd mentality and analysts cluster usually around a price target or around a rating because there is Reg FD now. They don't get that insider, I don't want to say insider, but inside information that they might have gotten, you know, in bygone era. So I think that um, analysts provide more value than just a rating and a price target. They're actually showing you a lot of interesting facts that you wouldn't otherwise uh, be aware of. But if you followed the average analyst over the last five years, you would actually generate an average of 6% every year, mostly because the market was uh, bullish over the last uh, eight or nine years. And so, so there is value, and there's also a lot of impact. So um, you spoke before about Barclays, for instance, upgrading IBM. So I haven't looked into that, but I'm sure the stock is now going up in the aftermarket. But no one really knows if the analyst is any good. And what we would recommend is to just check him out, see, you know, what happened when he upgraded other stocks So how before. do you grade those analysts? How is that, how, I mean, is it, does price target come into, into play? No, so what no. we do is we're trying to look at it from the perspective of the individual investor because we know that they are very responsive to what financial experts are saying. And analysts is one category. We also look at what financial bloggers are recommending. But basically, what we would do is once we see a buy rating or a sell rating, we would open a virtual buy or sell position and we will see how it performs ah. over time. We would then rank the analyst based on their success rate, how many of their buy or sell recommendations actually generated positive returns, right. and what is the average re return for every time they recommended a stock. Then we will incorporate them into a, a, a statistical equation that also looks on the significance of the data. So the more information we have, the more likely the analyst is going to be ranked either higher or lower. Um, can I tell you what we've suggested is that when okay. you bring an analyst on, you put down a little corner, whether that analyst has outperformed or underperformed the market. I mean, no, obviously, you're not going to get many guests if you do that. But what we would do would be permit your viewers to say, wait a minute, you've got Joe Smith on here. Just put a buy in a stock. He's explaining it. But over the last five years, this analyst has underperformed, overperformed, and you could use the data in many different ways. So we don't have that yet. So, Uri, why don't you give us the most accurate analyst and the least accurate an analyst right so, now? So I don't know uh, who, who is the best, uh, the most accurate analyst today. I'm sorry to disappoint. But you mentioned Mark Mahoney, which is actually always on the top 25, like for the last five years. The top 25 and, of all uh, analysts. Of around uh, 5,000. Across 5, sectors. Yeah, across wow. all sectors. And specifically in the tech sector. 
which is a great, what we see is that actually the smaller companies, the tier two, tier three research firms, Oppenheimer, um, I know RBC actually is also pretty good, are, are uh, outperforming the big banks. Really? Yeah. So like a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley? Yeah, we usually don't see them on the top 25. We saw a few from Deutsche Bank over the last few years, but we uh -huh. don't see all the big ones. So don't buy into the big blue chip name necessarily. I mean, you can buy and sell the research. week after because there's definitely impact with what they're it, it, saying. It, it, it's like hiring a law firm these days. You don't go to the biggest <laughs> law firm. Seriously, you hire an individual. You don't hire across the board because there's been sort of an equalization of skill across certain firms. You look for the individual. Tip ranks permits you to find either the best analyst or mm -hmm. one of the other metrics. You use the word insider in the legal sense. Yeah. When Insiders are buying or selling stock. There's a way to look at our website and say, look, does this CEO lead the market, follow the market, is selling when you know because of their filings that they've sold a good way to make money? All sorts of data there, yeah. completely transparent. I want to switch gears here yeah. um, and go to cryptocurrency. If you were AG, uh -huh. what would be your first target? Target. Or, well, or. Look, just so it's clear, I don't understand blockchain. I don't understand what, cryptocurrencies. What piqued your market. interest, though? I mean, if you, I mean, you what must piece, have thought to yourself, well, look, if I were in office again, this is this sure. is the area I would look here's, into. Here's and people didn't quite get this when I was AJ. I am very close to a libertarian as long as there is honesty, fairness, and transparency. People want to buy something as long as there's full disclosure about what they're getting and what those risks are. That's fine. That's their risk. What I would look at, therefore, is are, do people understand what it is they own, when they can buy, when they can sell, what's behind it, how quickly it can disappear. If those risk factors are fairly disclosed, then the risk is theirs. Then the market will work. Now, do I own a single Bitcoin? No, I don't get it. I don't understand what it is in any market that can go up 40%. Do you feel like, you, do you feel like if you wanted to get it, right. that you would understand the risks, that there's enough information out there about that? either I, the cryptocurrencies I, I, or the ICOs. I don't know because when I see volatility that is this extreme, it makes me think that there are factors. It, whether it's Dutch tulip bulbs, I don't know. But I do know when you can go up 40%, down 40% that quickly, there's something going on that isn't tethered, in my mind at least, to intrinsic value. Now, do I get the notion of a currency that is separated from sovereignty? I do. You know, we're moving to a world where sovereignty means less and less. War, perhaps, we hope is less likely. And economics is not tethered to sovereignty. We have to say. It's, but I, would I buy it today? No. Do I wish I had last week and sold at the right time? Absolutely. But looking backwards doesn't do you any good. All right. Thank you guys very much yeah. for your time, Uri. Real pleasure. Thank you, Thank you guys. Elliot, we appreciate it. Uh, still ahead, check out shares of American Express sinking in the after hours. The company announcing it will suspend its buybacks after taking a tax set. We'll bring you all the details. Plus, more and more countries are cracking down on crypto. But former FDIC chair Sheila Baer says rather than ban Bitcoin, government should be actually embracing it. She'll be here to explain why right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. American Express out with earnings after the bell today. That stock moving lower in the after-hours session. Let's go to Kate Rogers back at headquarters with the details. Hi, Kate. Hi, Melissa. That's right. American Express reporting a strong quarter with top and bottom line beats today, but also announcing plans to suspend its share buyback program. The credit card company cited additional charges incurred from the Tax Act for that move, saying it would suspend the program for the first half of 2018. That's in order to rebuild its capital. The Tax Act triggered an upfront charge of $2.6 billion that reduced Amex's capital ratios. The charge also led Amex to its first quarterly loss in 26 years. On the earnings call, CFO Jeffrey Campbell said the $2.6 billion number is a rough estimate. They're going to continue to evaluate the size of that charge as time goes on. American Express estimated its tax rate would come to about 22 percent before discrete tax items under the new law, adding it is, quote, a positive development for both the U.S. economy and American Express, something they reiterated on the call. The company also said it would invest $200 million 
billion more towards customer growth initiatives in 2018 than it had originally anticipated, and it made an incremental contribution toward employee profit-sharing plans, but they did not enclose the amount. This will also mark the last report under Kenshinol, as Steve Squarey will take the helm in February. The stock is up by around half a percent or so for the year so far, but is down more than 2% after this earnings report. Melissa, back over to you. All right, thanks a lot. Kate Rogers back at headquarters. Karen, what'd you uh, make of all? There's a lot of stuff going on with Amex There's right now. There's a lot of stuff. The buyback stuff is nothing. This is just a, a non-cash charge. They'll be back in the buyback business later in the year. I don't see that as a big deal. What is more important, though, is how much it costs now to get clients. Customer, yes. Yeah. That is, and that there's repercussions for, for J.P. Morgan's and for City and others. I mean, I mean that has been a, a real competitive area, especially with the rewards programs. Yes. I mean, everybody else is up in the ante, and it seemed like American Express, at least in recent years, have been cutting back on the number of partners it includes in its membership program. No, so. I mean, it's expensive. It's really expensive. I yeah. mean, yeah, Pete was just showing me his silver card. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have that black that one that's steel? made out of the special yes. metal. It's a shield, actually. And it's a mini with it. Yeah. <laughs> I think the Ken Chenault news, the former CEO joining the Facebook board, is kind of interesting. When you think of David Marcus, who runs their messaging, um, which is Messenger and WhatsApp, and you think about, well, at some point, how are they going to monetize messaging? I think it could be payments. So, um, David Marcus, ex PayPal CEO, uh, Ken Chenault on the board. I don't know. Maybe there's a PayPal uh, or some sort of. Hmm. Synergies there, yeah. 2014 high was 95. To me, that's sort of the line in the sand in terms of where the stock needs to hold. But I'll say this. I think the reason, in my opinion, the reason why the stock is lower, a lot of things. I think the guidance for 2018 was somewhat disappointing. I think people are looking for a guidance raise. You didn't get it. But then you look at uh, American Express on valuation and say, it's not ridiculously expensive at current valuation. So I think it holds 95. I think you buy it if it gets there. Sticking with earnings, Netflix set to report after the bell next Monday. The options market implying some pretty big moves. So, Dan, what do you see? Yeah, so the options market is implying about a 7.5% move in either direction. That's about 16 bucks. This stock is already okay. up you know, almost 15% on the year, closing uh, very near an all-time high today. On average, the stock has moved about 5.5% uh, over the last four quarters. But the long-term average on the year average is about 13% one-day moves. Here's a five-year chart. When you look at this thing, you just see this thing riddled with massive gaps. And when it makes new highs, it oftentimes does that on earnings event. I'll just make one point. This is that 14% move that we're talking about. And some of the action that we've seen in some of these stocks that have been reporting Q4 earnings that have run into their earnings, they could be discounting some of that good news here. But just to be really clear, you know, playing this with options is pretty expensive unless you're looking for put protection along that you already have big gains on over the last year. What do you think of Netflix and earnings? Been a bull for a long time. Yeah. I mean, their international growth continues to crush. I, I, I say this. I'm not saying Apple is going to buy Netflix. We, we've, we, maybe they should have done it a long time ago. But with all this money coming back that's mm. being repatriated, all of a sudden, Netflix might be more in play than we think. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. For more Options Action, full show is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up. Former FDIC Chair Sheila Baer sounding the alarm on the crypto crackdown. She will be here in just a few minutes to explain why a Bitcoin ban is a bad idea. Much more fast right after this. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Is a crypto crackdown coming? The chart doesn't lie. Bitcoin's bad week began when regulators around the world started proposing a ban on the cryptocurrency. Take a look at the map. So far, government officials from about a dozen countries have a ban or they're planning a ban or they're planning on proposing a ban or to ban trading on cryptocurrency exchanges. So should the U.S. government ban Bitcoin? Should they clamp down on Bitcoin trading? Former FDIC chair Sheila Baer says... No. In a Yahoo Finance op-ed, she writes, this is hardly the first time markets have wildly overpriced assets. <laughs> Netherlands didn't ban tulips in the 1630s, nor did we ban tech stocks when they reached nosebleed levels in the early 2000s. Former FDIC chair Sheila Baer joins us now. She's also a Paxos board member, a blockchain startup that operates a Bitcoin exchange regulated by the New York Department of Financial Services. Sheila, good to see you. So obviously you have you have skin in the game here. Uh, well, actually, I, I don't aside. I don't own Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, no. And I, the uh, Paxos is primarily uh, developing blockchain technology. But uh, I didn't want to disclose that. But in writing the op ed. But so I don't own it. Uh, okay. I don't really have a personal financial interest. But I do think it's uh, something that regulators need to deal with, but not ban. So I would say I, I think some additional regulation would actually be good. And I argued for that, especially on. And anti-money laundering laws, uh-huh. you know, I think there are a lot of concerns about the use of Bitcoin or other uh, digital currencies. How, how far should regulators go well, in terms of yeah. regulating Bitcoin? So I think, so yeah. FinCEN, which is the Department of Treasury uh, Bureau that deals with this, has already started regulating them as money service, uh, uh, money transmitters. So there is some oversight already. And, you know, I think uh, manipulation is also an area that we need to take a closer look at. I actually think that the fact that the CME and CBOE launched futures actually could help because that will also give them a window into providing, getting more reporting from the underlying Bitcoin exchanges that are feeding prices into their futures products that will give the CFTC a window and some information to make sure there's no manipulation going on. So I think, you know, we don't ban assets. I mean, you know, where does that stop? I, you know, I have some on my list, like, you know, CDO squared, we could ban those. That would be fine with me, you know, synthetic derivatives. There are a lot of products out there that have, you know, in a lot of people's minds, have, uh, have questionable value. But we've traditionally in the U.S., we've let markets price values and determine what the value is. But make sure there is no manipulation, no fraud, clear disclosures. People make informed decisions in pricing the asset, whatever they want to buy or sell. So let me ask you something. You're very familiar with leverage and how it can really yeah. work against you. So yeah. when we see these new futures products, they have some amount of margin available. Right. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I think leverage is another area ripe for regulation. They set very high margin requirements. It's been so volatile, they may want to up those, those margin requirements. They may not want to permit leverage. I think, you know, when, you, when you're worried about asset bubbles from a regulatory perspective, the first thing you should look at is whether how much leverage is feeding into uh, the, 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 the investment demand. So I think that's entirely appropriate. And there, again, maybe for the underlying exchanges, we want to look at that. Certainly, I hope insured banks aren't making loans for people to take speculative leverage bets in uh, digital currencies. That would be, I think, an inappropriate uh, activity for a, a bank that's in the safety net. So those are the kinds of discrete issues I think regulators absolutely should be looking at. But again, banning it is just not something typically that's done. Okay, so yes. so no ban, but but I mean, I think that the march towards regulation is right. almost inevitable in yeah, this area in some right. form. Since you sit on the board of a Bitcoin exchange, I mean, are you are you confident that there's enough in place to know that prices are not being manipulated, and that I mean, the, the drive yeah. towards futures it invites bigger players and who might have the ability to manipulate the underlying price right. of the commodity. So well, there are a lot of d- different venues for doing this, and I think. Uh, you know, we're subject to oversight by the DFS. I think the, the DFS has kind of been in the lead on this and have got, it's been 
controversial with some, but I think they've done a pretty good job. So I, I think that's an area providing at least regulated forms so that investors who want to go to a regulated venue to change Bitcoin have, you know, a meaningfully regulated uh, venue to trade Bitcoin should have that opportunity. Whether you want to acquire it, I don't know. That's probably something to think about. Uh, but it's, um, I, I think, I worry that people are getting into this because they're seeing the, you know, the skyrocketing returns, and the, the tremendous increase in value without really understanding what it is. And that's another reason why I wrote that op-ed, because I think there's a lot of confusion between Bitcoin and blockchain technology, which right. under, you know, that's really the ledger, the way that you trace ownership of Bitcoin. And that can be applied to a lot of different uh, assets. And that's the, the primary business of, of this board that I serve on is to, to try to develop those technologies. But those are two different things. Buying Bitcoin doesn't oh, give sure. you upside into the potential use of blockchain for, for instance, security settlement or something like that. So people need to understand those differences, too. All right. Sheila, great yeah. to speak with sure. you. Thank sure. you for coming Happy by. Sheila Bear, former FDIC chair. What did you do in crypto, in crypto land today? I, I just thought that the sentiment overshot to the downside like a lot of people. So maybe we had that kind of panic sell-off. So I think that I bought some Ether, like I said before, and I bought some Bitcoin Cash today, um, adding on the way down. So to me, I'm just playing for kind of a bounce back to maybe the midpoint between this range that we've seen mm -hmm. over the last month. All right. Up next, final trades. Final trade time, Petey. Do we have the greatest guests ever tonight? Or Lots of great. Holy Starting oh, with geez. the one and only Jim Cramer, yeah. Elliot Spencer. City, this thing's going higher. Giddy up, we're going towards 90. Chairwoman. I love that. TBT, I don't know that tomorrow's the day to buy it because it was up a lot today, but I really do think inflation is coming. This is a pretty easy way to play it. It's a good hedge against the market. TBT, right here. So about 45 yeah. minutes ago, did yes. you just hear Jim Cramer just break down that IBM quarter like that? Like, yeah. bang, 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 bang. Stock's up like three bucks since That's he was JC. talking about wow. it. Wow. I think it's a buy here. I think hey, you're going to see it back above 173. Yeah. What do you think? Eat. We should have JC on more often. Yeah. I invite him. He's welcome anytime. He knows right that. Now. He knows Come that. On, Jim. He's not great at Would You Rather. <laughs> he does not play by the rules. But he, but he finally does. Finally. That's true. He's in line with everybody. If, if there are tip ranks here on Would You Rather, maybe he can power pitch. <laughs> anyway. Cypress Summit breaking out to the upside ahead of February 1st earnings. Thanks for watching. Mad Money with Jim Kramer is up next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower? The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.